Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. This podcast is my gift of service to Alcoholics Anonymous. It strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. My guest on today's show is my close friend, Jim W., who's been a member of AA 32 years. His journey through alcoholism and drug addiction started early in life. After Jim's parents divorced when he was only six months old, he was essentially raised by his two sisters and brother, who were 14, 16, and 18 years older, while his mother worked to support the family. As a toddler, he accompanied his siblings to parties where he got his first taste of marijuana and alcohol. For his 10th birthday, his adult brother gave him a joint and drinks of peppermint schnapps. By 13, he was a daily pot smoker and drank whenever he could. By high school, he was crashing cars and getting into trouble. He also became a drug dealer to support his own habit of mainlining cocaine. Jim went to a party college where his first DWI landed him in jail, replete with DTs and drug withdrawal. As he spiraled downward, a desperate visit to a psychiatrist and the coincidental death of two childhood friends who were on his same path provided Jim's wake-up call at the age of 21. After two weeks in a treatment center and another slip, Jim ran into a friend who was sober in AA for five years. He offered Jim help. Completely defeated, Jim came into AA in Cleveland, Ohio, and found a sponsor the very first day. His immersive experience in the program that followed formed a solid foundation for years of sobriety and service to come. Jim frequently quotes the big book from memory, not to show off, but in the earnest desire to help others. He still goes to lots of meetings and sponsors new men all the time. He consistently demonstrates the same firm, no-nonsense approach to working the 12 steps that was ingrained in him by the Northeast Ohio brand of AA. Jim's story is a fine example of where grateful sobriety can lead after 32 years in AA. I'm glad I've known Jim for the majority of that time and hope you'll enjoy what he has to say in this, the 31st interview of the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I'm an alcoholic. My name's Jim. Through the grace of God of 12 Steps of the Fellowship, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink for the last 11,679 days. For this, I'm truly grateful. Hi, Jim. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for that introduction of the amount of sobriety you have. You're the first guest I've had who has actually embellished the high how are you type for those days. And I wanted to ask you, is that something you've done throughout your sobriety? Or when did you start doing that? Well, actually, my, my first sponsor counted his recovery in days. And it's uh -huh. something that was passed on to me um, you know, back then. Uh -huh. He uh, used a, a checkbook calendar to count his days. And... I graduated over the years from a floppy disk to an app, and yeah, the I counted in days, and it's um, it's how we get it. Yeah, and so that's how I count it. Wow, that's kind of cool because I've seen I've heard you do that for years and years now, and uh, I don't know anybody. You know, some people will say, "Hi, I'm so and so, and through the grace of God, I'm sober today," or uh, "By the grace of God, I haven't felt it necessary to take a drink today," or et cetera, et cetera. But I think what what you say when you talk about the days really emphasizes the one day at a time nature of this program. Well, one of the other things my sponsor emphasized with me was hold your recovery, your sobriety up like a jewel and polish it every day. That's a great way to think about it. So what does that work out to in terms of years, the number of days? On June 21st, I'll have 32 years. 32 years. Wow, that is amazing. That is amazing. It's a little while. Yeah. Did you ever think you'd be alive to see 32 years? I didn't think sober. I'd make it past 21, Howard. It was, you know. 21 years sober or 21, 21 years, years old? old. Old, yeah. No, I was not headed in the right direction. How old were you when you got sober? I was 21. 21. Mm -hmm. Wow. Needed wow. it when I was 13, but didn't get it till I was 21. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, by the okay. time I was 13, I was using on a daily basis. Is that right? Wow. What was going on in your family of origin that created an environment for using at 13 on a daily basis? 
Well, I used to say I was born to party when I was using. Uh -huh. um, my parents were divorced when I was six months old, and that right. was 1968. Oh, my. The, the, the days of sex and drugs and rock and, and roll. And, roll. and I was raised by three adolescent siblings while my mother went back to school to be able to earn an income to support uh -huh. Four children. So by the time I was old enough to walk, I was passing the joint across the room and oh, I'd had my geez. bottle filled with wine. Uh -huh. And, um, but, but please don't misunderstand. I don't blame my parents. I don't right, blame my siblings right. for my alcoholism. Uh -huh. You know, there came a point in time where I made a real clear decision that that yeah. was how I was going to gain that sense of ease and comfort was yeah. by taking a few drinks. That's interesting. One, one of my other guests who I interviewed early on in the series, uh, she was the oldest child, and because of her mother's not being there and her father not being there for whatever reasons, as the oldest sibling, she was given the responsibility of essentially raising the younger siblings. Is that what happened in your home? You know, my mother was there. Uh-huh. I mean, but she literally, she had gotten married when she was 17. She had, uh -huh. had her first baby at 18. Yeah. Was divorced at 36 and didn't have any kind of career track or path. And mm -hmm. you know, back then, it was much more of a traditional kind of misogynistic household of daddy earned the living and mommy mm -hmm. stayed home and raised the, the children. And yeah. so that's, that's what she did. It was a generational thing. And then at 36, when she's divorced, all of a sudden she's got to go to college. She, I was really proud of her. I mean, she not only endured the agony of a really ugly divorce, but she got her master's degree in three years Wow! after delivering a baby, you know, six months later, uh, <laughs> you know. So she was 36 when you were born? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the divorce happens right after that? Within six months. Wow, yes. mm -hmm. wow. One time for old time's sake is what they say. But do you know what, what went on during that time in your family that created a situation for divorce shortly after you were born? You know, I've gotten some of the story. Uh -huh. I don't know that I've ever gotten all of the story. Right. I've gotten, uh -huh. you know, I don't know if there was infidelity. My mother claimed that she was assaulted. Oh, okay. And my father thought that it was much more of a consensual as was in his mind. In his mind. Yeah. And yeah. he, and I, and I don't know what came first, to be honest with you. I don't right. know if her infidelity or assault happened before he hooked up with the neighbor next door, but he ended up marrying the woman next door. Wow. And then adopting two children who were my stepbrother and sister, who I resented for probably two decades of well, you know, uh -huh. my well. young childhood and adolescence. So on your mother's side, from the marriage till the point at which she got divorced, how many siblings are there? My oldest brother, who was the firstborn, he right. was 18 when I was born. Wow. Um, my oldest sister was 16 when I was born uh -huh. and my youngest sister was 14 when I was born. And so I was, it was really kind of interesting because I had all these wonderful adolescents who really didn't know what they were doing right. when it comes to raising a child. Yeah. Um, and I was surrounded by a bunch of hippies. Uh -huh. um, it was a very loving environment. So I, I had this childhood of, you know, having these siblings who were much older than I was for a time. Right. But within, you know, the first five years of my life, they were all grown and gone hmm. and so i became an only child almost by the time they were gone then who was taking was your mother back to taking care of you well she had to work but you know i was a latchkey kid so would you say that all of that contributed to what happened when you turned 13 and, and started using or well i didn't start using at 13 i was using i was using on a daily basis at 13 at 13 yeah for my 10th birthday my brother-in-law gave me a joint <laughs> oh no um, you know, he also took me to the bar that he owned and got me drunk. Oh my peppermint God. schnapps. And so wow. you know, I was I had started using long before then. Socially, yeah, <laughs> quote socially. unquote. If yeah. if you know school age children use socially, which I don't think is no. really true, but from a perspective of the transition between using with my family right. uh -huh. versus using with my friends kinda of, it, it happened in about sixth or seventh grade. You know, by that time, it was, you know, by the time I was 13, it was daily. So when you were a kid, the using that you did, some of it was on your own accord. Some of it was you were brought into it by siblings or situations. It occurs to me that you might not have drank peppermint schnapps unless you had been taken to the bar. Correct. Right. So, so a lot of the things that occurred to you when you were a young kid 
were not of your own volition, but just because you were part of the scene that was doing all that kind of stuff, huh? Yeah, I, I think there was definitely a, a strong environmental influence, uh -huh. absolutely. Yeah. But I also remember being very involved in athletics uh -huh. um, prior to my adolescence uh -huh. and um, making a conscious decision to give up on sports so that I could do more partying. So the guys who you were hanging out with on the sports end of things or the in, when you were involved, they weren't doing the things that you were doing with regard to drinking or using? No, I had these friends who were academically focused right. and or athletically focused. Uh -huh. And then there were, you know, the other friends that were partying. Uh -huh. And um, it was definitely, there was definitely a distinction in regards to, I don't know if they still call them nerds nowadays, but, you mm -hmm. know, nerds and jocks and mm -hmm. burnouts. And mm -hmm. that was kind of the terminology. And so were you a burnout? Yes, absolutely. You Flannel shirts and concert t-shirts underneath <laughs> and, you know, ratty jeans and, um, you know, joined a gang at the age of 13 as well. Now, where did you end up in the pecking order of, of the gang or groups of friends of groups of burnouts around you? Were you a leader? Were you a follower? Were you an instigator? Were you one of these who hung in the background? I, I would never classify myself as one who hung in the background. I, I, I always hung out with kids that were older than I was. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's probably fairly understandable in growing up with yeah. such older siblings. Yeah. And so from that perspective and, and hanging out with anyone who was older than I was, I, I don't know that I took on a leadership role there, but mm. definitely with my own peers. I, I was an instigator. I mean, I was very, I was troubled. I was an angry young man and mm. was willing to to do anything to express it except for, <laughs> you know, in a healthy, appropriate manner. So you got whatever affirmation that you needed as a kid from hanging with these different groups? Oh, well, it was a transition from my family mm. and what I knew as, mm -hmm. as, you know, interactions at a familial level to, um, you know, to a social level with my friends and peers. So this is all going on in and around middle school, it sounds like. Yeah, well, we called it junior high. Junior back high, then, yeah, but, that's right. No, I mean, I was using in elementary school. Wow. The first time I ever ran away was in elementary school. Yeah. Um, and I remember using it. It wasn't daily at that point in time. But again, by seventh grade, it was daily. Did you ever get caught? Uh, I reference using because, yeah. you know, at 13, the access to alcohol is much more difficult than it is to anything else, yeah, specifically sure. marijuana at uh -huh. that point in time. Getting caught, I, I mean, you know, there were there, there was more than one occasion where we were stopped by the police, but never really caught on, on a possession. I mean, I remember specifically uh -huh. one instance where we, we had found a pipe. It was it literally was at this party uh -huh. and we found it. And one of my friends had a bag of weed on him. Uh -huh. And so the cop pulls us over, stops us for curfew, uh -huh. searches us, finds the pipe. And we're all consistently telling him we found it at this party. And while we're all consistently telling him that, my friend's shoving the bag of weed down his pants so he never found it. Oh, wow. Um, to be honest with you, I never... Possession and being under the influence didn't play a role until later. I get it. But yeah. I did have... Um, you know, I was charged with assault at 13. Oh, my gosh. Hmm. Did you hit somebody? Or? I did. I think he used the term bastard, which didn't bode well for him <laughs> and or me. Yeah, I guess not. So what were the consequences of that? They pressed charges and I had to go to court. Uh -huh. I don't know that I had probation or anything. Right. I think, you know, I, I had to avoid being in trouble. Right, right. For six months or whatever it was. And I managed to do that. Uh, I do remember being arrested for theft. <laughs> Uh, a friend of mine was, um, we were mm -hmm. walking mm -hmm. across a parking lot and they, that they had parking meters back sure. then. Uh -huh. We, he had noticed that this parking meter was no, it wasn't really fixed in the concrete. Yeah. It was just kind of yeah. detached wobbly. and yeah. wobbly. And he picked it up and we went running and. <laughs> <laughs> Did you at least get to see how much money was in it or no? no? I don't think so. We, <laughs> we didn't make it that far. We were, Aww. we were probably three blocks from his house when they caught us. But yeah. yeah. They're a lot heavier than you'd think they, too, aren't they? They are, yes. Especially when you're 13 or 14 years old. They're... Wow. So, you know, I, I was a menace to society at that age. Yeah. I yeah. don't know that there was ever a possession charge until my first DWI. Now you're originally from Cleveland. Yes. And of course the driving age in Ohio is 16. Correct. And back then, the, the legal drinking age was 18. Was 18. And as after I had turned 18, 
they changed it to 21, so I was grandfathered in, which made me all that much more popular with yeah. some of my younger peers. And didn't uh, Ohio have state state stores? They did. Which were the only place you could get hard liquor. Mm-hmm. So you're running with this crowd. You're getting caught. You did, did you ever have to go to juvenile detention or no, any of that no, kind of I, stuff? I never, never served any any time there. The, the only time I ever served was a three-day stint for my first DWI. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it didn't go well. It didn't. Huh? But it was actually the platform that I needed to, to establish recovery. Really? Absolutely. Huh. Well, let's talk about that in a minute uh, when we kind of catch up on what high school was like for you. Um, academics lost a priority. It yeah. was no longer the priority. I was, you know, I, I, I was getting by. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget. I, I guess it was my senior year in high school. Mm-hmm. I was I was actually attending a vocational, it was architectural design mm-hmm. vocational program, as uh-huh. well as doing college prep at my home high school. Hmm. There was a transition in, in teachers mm-hmm. from my junior year to my senior year. Mm-hmm. And this teacher took it upon himself. He had to play alpha male in the classroom uh-huh. and he saw i think his the interpretation i had was that he saw me as the the the, the one challenge that he needed to overcome to establish himself as that really it was very interesting huh. uh you know because we as humans we you know we have all of these different developmental issues right, and right. i think you know th- i think this was an issue for him but we literally we were involved in a car accident together he oh. was actually he was a racer he would race cars and drive. Uh-huh. He was a gearhead. Oh, yeah. We were on the same street. Uh-huh. He was in a right turn lane. Uh-huh. And I knew he was in a right turn lane. Uh-huh. And my, my rear view mirror had been knocked off of my, my windshield. Oh, so yeah. I didn't have a rear view mirror. Uh-huh. There was a girl with me. She was witness to all this. And so I went past the lights where he was supposed to turn right. Right. And I didn't look back uh-huh. because I assumed that he had turned right. So I, I move over into his lane, and he's he's there. He oh. didn't turn right. Oh, I, we didn't collide at that point in time. But what he did was he got in the left lane, went around me, and then locked him up, slammed on his brakes in front of me. Oh, and we were involved in this car accident, uh-huh. right? And he comes, he jumps out of his car and comes screaming up to my car and rips the door open and starts physically challenging me. Oh my God! I'll never forget. There was, I think it was a milk truck, and they still had milk yeah, trucks yeah. back then. Uh-huh. It was a milk truck um, who witnessed everything uh-huh, and uh-huh. stopped and told the police what he had seen, which yeah. was that he cut me off mm-hmm. and then threw the door open. He took off. He he. It was a hit and run kind oh, of situation. Okay, sure, yeah. So he takes off, and the girl I have in the car with me is a witness. This truck driver's a witness. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I end up transitioning out of that vocational program in the high school was more than willing to pay for me to go to another high school's vocational program to get out of any kind of legal ramifications. Okay, so you wouldn't have to be around that guy anymore. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So I was going back and forth, and I would drink in between one yeah. high school on the way to the other. Uh-huh. And I'll never forget the principal calling me into his office one day, and I had, you know, I had beer on my breath, and uh-huh. he says, you, you smell like alcohol. Have you been drinking? And I said, no, last night I spilled one in my car, uh-huh. and I sat yeah, in it yeah. on the way, and I hadn't cleaned it all up. Right, and, right. You know, that was just the kind of thing that would happen pretty consistently. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm the guy that was selling drugs to your children. Oh, you were. Okay. Oh, so you were dealing drugs when you were in high school. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking about grass. We're talking about pills. Quaaludes. Quaaludes. Quaaludes yes. were big back then. Yes. Uh, cocaine. Was that very, very Ooh, much cocaine yeah, at the time? I, I, I'm glad you brought it up. I, I, I mean, you know, my attitude is, is bottles are but symbols. Right. Um, and so it's just a matter of, yeah, yeah. It, it's all the same to me. I'm yeah. an alcoholic. Right. That's what I call myself. Yeah. But yeah, by the time I was 16, I was mainlining cocaine. And what does that entail? Just intravenous use. So you're cooking the cocaine down to a liquid mm-hmm. and then you're shooting up. Correct. What does that do to you? I'm not sure if I had a heart attack, but I think I did. Really? At some point in time. And I'll never forget one of my friends going, he, he'd gone into treatment. Uh-huh. He had a heart attack at 17, something like that, 16, 17. Wow. And he was in the hospital, and we went in, and they had to strap his arms down. And he was, uh, all he could tell us was, get the bugs off me, get the bugs off me. Mm-hmm. It was pretty powerful stuff mm-hmm. to see visu- visually. Mm-hmm. But until I experienced it, and that goes back to that first DWI and spending those three days off the streets, and mm-hmm. I, I, I would went into withdrawal in Uh jail Mm -hmm. and it really helped me come to terms with and understand you know you might have a problem here 
Did you do well enough in your selling of the drugs to convince yourself otherwise? Oh, I thought I was Scarface. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'd moved out of the house at 16. I had an apartment with a roommate. I had a union job at a grocery store and I was selling on top of it. And so I, I would put paychecks in, in my desk drawer and forget about them. Because huh. yeah, um, you were doing a cash business on the side. Uh-huh. But... Um, Eventually, that you know, that all failed. Yeah, tucked my tail between my legs and ended up moving home at eighteen for 18. my senior year. I inevitably used up all my profits. You did, okay, absolutely. I think I totaled three cars before I was eighteen. How many DUIs did you have by that point? Well, the first one happened in college, right? And I, I always say I have one and a half. Okay. And the reason I say I have one and a half is I was convicted for one. I deserved two. Uh-huh. Well, I deserved a lot more than that, right, but right. I was I was arrested for two, but mm-hmm. I got off on the second one um, because of good legal advice that I received while I was incarcerated for the first one. <laughs> I get it. I get it. So you somehow make it out of high school to go to college. I, I think I did enough academically to get by. Yeah. And I, I think they wanted me gone as much as I wanted to be gone. Uh-huh. And so I'm sure that there were definitely some strings <laughs> that were pulled to, to, to get me my, my graduation certificate, sure. You academically achieved by virtue of them wanting you the hell out of there, huh? Oh, I was an underachiever, absolutely. All those little fill-in-the-bubble tests, I, I right. excelled at, you know, scored in the 98th percentile on most of them. Initially, elementary school and even some in junior high, right. I, it translated into good grades, but after a while, that that was no longer the priority. Did you graduate high school at 18? Mm-hmm. So did you go off the next fall? Straight into college, yes. You did. And you had did. to take remedial math. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went to Kent State University. A graduated state from Kent State University, graduated. I'm proud to say. If, it, really? if I hadn't, yeah, if I had gotten sober in college, there's no way I would have graduated, that's for wow. sure. Wow. My sister is an alum of Kent State, mm-hmm. and uh, quite a few years earlier than that, but it was a good state school, uh, as state schools in Ohio go. Uh, it wasn't the reason I went there. No, I'm sure not. No, the reputation of that school is much much more about partying and having a good time, and that's why I went there. So you went there at 18, and you told us earlier that you got sober at 21. Correct. So you had a three-year run, so you actually got sober before you graduated? Yes. So walk us up to that point from graduating high school up to the point at which you get sober. I had gotten my first DWI. I want to say I was 20 right. at the time. Mm-hmm. Actually, I was probably 19. Yeah. I did three days because it was a requirement in Ohio when right. you were convicted. I think I blew like a one, two, five, and back then the legal limit was one. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had to serve those three days. And I had never, I'd never gone without mm-hmm. drugs and alcohol for yeah. more than maybe 24 hours. Right. And after about 24 hours of sitting in jail, I started sweating and I started shaking and mm. I literally started experiencing withdrawal and DTs. Mm. And I didn't know what was going on and everybody kept telling me, you're going to be okay, you're going to be okay. And I ended up you know, curled up in a fetal position in the corner because I just, my, my body was doing things that I had no control over and it was really, it, it was eye-opening later. Yeah. So you were physically addicted at that point. Oh, absolutely. And had been for a while, I guess. Absolutely. You know, the, the other thing that's important about that experience was yeah. they give you classes. They call it DWI school, right. but there's bars on the windows and right, doors right. and the food's horrible. So, you know, it was jail. They give you all this education and information, and one of the first things they tell you is eight out of ten of you will be back. And I sat there and I shook my head, no, that's not me. It's not going to happen to me. And then I think 45 minutes later, I was meeting with an attorney. They gave you free legal advice. Mm -hmm. And even though I said, no, that's not me, the first thing I asked that attorney was, what do I do next time I get pulled over and I'm drunk? (laughs) And it's just, you know, it was those those kinds of hypocrisies that just kept coming through in my life Uh that, uh that drove me to finally get recovery. Yeah. After that first DWI, Uh three months later in the same city by the same cop, I got pulled over for the same reason. Oh, my goodness. And I poured myself out of the car, and I waved at him, and I said, you remember me? And he just shook his head. (laughs) But the attorney that I'd spoken to when I was incarcerated, what he told me was, don't blow. And so when they took me down to the jail, I think it was a Friday night, and... You know, they say, oh, well, you need to blow into this. And I said, no, I don't. Mm. And they said, well, you're going to lose your license. And I said, that's okay. Mm. 
And they said, well, we're going to keep you in jail here, and it's a holiday, so you're going to be stuck here till Tuesday, not just till Monday. Mm -hmm. And I said, give me my blanket. Hmm. And they let me go on personal recognizance, and then they had no proof because they didn't have dash cam back then. Yeah, yeah, sure. And so I ended up pleading guilty to left of center and paying maximum fine of left of center and got off. So I had one and a half DWIs. Not that I didn't deserve a bunch others. Sure, sure. So had you blown into that breathalyzer? I'd had, I think the next... The next level was 10 days after, th- I think it went 3, 10, 30, 60 back then. Wow. I think it's much, much harsher now. That didn't scare you straight, though, did it? No. Well, the first place I went after doing the three days was to the bar. Uh-huh. So that following summer, after getting that second arrest right. without serving any time or uh-huh. um, getting convicted, that summer I lost two friends in two weeks as a matter of a direct result of drinking and drugs. Uh-huh. And the first thing I did was turn to the same thing that killed them. Huh. And I had no coping skills. I, mm-hmm. You know, this grief was overwhelming to mm-hmm. me. Uh, the mm-hmm. first kid that died was, he was the first kid that ever spent the, the night at my house. He oh. was the first kid that I, you know, we, we got in a fight in fifth grade over the prettiest girl in school. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. Um, we weren't real good friends after yeah. high school right. or after elementary school, yeah. but he was a dear friend, you know, prior to, yeah. and um, it was pretty overwhelming. I'll bet. And then, um, you know, two weeks later, I lost a friend. He was in a in a car accident. He was uh-huh. driving home from Riverfest, which uh-huh. is a party in Cleveland on the flats. Right. It's notorious for drinking. And um, he jumped the median driving home and oh. killed himself and a family of three sh- from Chicago. Oh. I melted down. And oh. I, I had been to see psychologists and counselors mm-hmm. throughout mm-hmm. the years. I mean, my mother was a social worker, so she, you know, she knew. And she would always tell me, oh, tell me how you're feeling. And I would just roll my eyes at her because it was too threatening. Yeah, I get that. It was way too threatening. Yeah, I, just, I, I couldn't accept and acknowledge and own my feelings. Did any of those people who you saw over the years, the therapists, did any of them confront you with the alcohol or drug use, and what was your response? The last psychiatrist, and he was a psychiatrist that I had seen, had asked me, he said, well, do you think you have a drug or a drinking problem? And I said, no, I get as much as I need. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he, you know, he, he Wise it was guy. really impressive to me how well he handled me. Yeah. Because he said, well, that's great. You know, if... It, if you feel like you ever need help, call me. Hmm. And after losing two friends in two weeks, mm-hmm. I needed help. Hmm. He arranged for me to be uh, admitted for treatment. Back then it was $20,000 or fifteen. Sure. Uh-huh. serve you pork chops that are right. three inches thick. Mm-hmm. And it was nice because they gave me Librium and Lithium hmm. and uh, helped me go through my withdrawal. How long were you there? I did two weeks of a 30-day program. What happened to two weeks? Did you get booted out or? No, no, no. I signed myself out early. I was over 18. I was 20 at the time. Uh And um, this is what happened is they wouldn't give me a white coat and a clipboard and let me play junior (laughs) counselor. So even back then you were a service kind of guy. Well, at that point in time, it may have been just to avoid facing my own reality. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Um, So dealing with other people so you wouldn't have to deal with yourself. Sure. I get that. Absolutely. So two weeks. Now, did within that time, were you exposed to 12 steps or AA or anything like that? What? Well, Nurse Ratchet used to try to make us go to the AA meetings, but again, yeah. we were adults, so she really couldn't do much. You didn't go at all? I went to one or two. What'd you think? I had been to AA meetings prior to. Right. Um, I had several friends who were assigned to go to AA meetings when we were 15, 16 years old, and we'd smoke dope, go to the go to the meetings and watch all these old people drink coffee and smoke cigarettes and huh. laugh at them. And, yeah. Um, so I knew, you know, and I had friends who had, who had gotten sober in high school. Sure. And the ones that stayed sober out of treatment were the ones that went to AA. Right, right. And so I was already hostile towards Alcoholics okay. Anonymous yeah. because they took away all my using friends. And uh-huh. so I didn't want much to do with AA. But uh-huh. yeah, I did have some exposure and treatment, but I was... I was I was focused on other things. I mean, it was a co-ed facility, and I had my priorities. Yeah, I'll bet you did. So two weeks after you're there, you're out, and is it back Mm -hmm. to the same game? I didn't use right away. I think I... I want to say I probably I was ready to use as soon as I got out, but I had several friends that wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't buy into my BS, and 
They said, no, you need to give yourself a chance. So there was nothing revealed to you during those two weeks that would be the aha moment of, of your life at that point? What was revealed to me was the physical the physical craving and yeah. the mental obsession. But the mental obsession wasn't really, I didn't I, I didn't get that. I mean, I get it. you know, they showed us the video, the chalk talk videos right. and things mm-hmm. like that. And so it became apparent to me and it, it gave me information about mm-hmm. the, the physical craving and how my body breaks it down differently. Mm-hmm. But I didn't hear or learn about the mental obsession. Okay. And so what I thought was, is if I, you know, I can go to keg parties and bars as long as I don't pick up the first one, I won't get drunk. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and that, that was kind of my philosophy and it lasted about two or three, maybe four weeks. And then mm. the first, I think the first time I drank, I tilted one back. It was gone instantaneously. And, but I couldn't drink another one because that would be drinking alcoholically. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. But then the next weekend, I was, you know, inebriated. This is why you're I'm at, still in college. You're at Kent. Yes. And this is going on during the during the term, or was it over the summer? When, when did this happen? The tre- I went into treatment at, during the summer. Okay. And then, you know, the, the fall semester started. And so I had started using by the time I'd gotten back into my fall semester. Wow. So you're going into your junior year at that point? Yes. And well, it was kind of sophomore, junior, okay. because there were, you know, I had to drop a couple of classes yeah. here and there because I wasn't going to pass them. And I was on the five year program. So you're approaching 20. What happened going forward from there? When, when did you finally hit your bottom and what did that look like? It was probably about a year. It was the following summer uh-huh. after treatment. Um, I was working for a painter who was paying us with rubber checks. Mm-hmm. I was back at home with mommy, which mm. was really kind of a, a, a blow to my ego. I'll I was a, I was very egotistical. I was mm-hmm. very full of myself. Sure. You know, having to move home was kind of a, a humbling experience. Yeah. And so I'm back at home. I've got this job that's not really paying me. And and it wasn't so much the exterior stuff. It right. wasn't the materialistic things. Yeah. It was the inside. Yeah. I'd gone to treatment and I knew that I shouldn't be drinking or using, but I was still doing it anyway. Uh-huh. And miraculously, this friend of mine who, you know, we were so close, we looked alike. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd used, he was, we went to elementary school together and junior high. We we're mm-hmm. in the, you know, in the brotherhood and, mm-hmm. um, he and I are, you know, we see each other. We're driving down the same street. Right. Uh-huh. You know, we kind of play around a little bit. We stop, we do lunch. And I tell him, yeah, I went to, and I know he's sober. He's been sober because he's the one that went, yeah, he was oh, yeah, one yeah. of the ones that went to AA. And he's, yeah. he's got five years at the age of 21. You know, I'm like, yeah, I went to treatment last year and I've only been higher drunk 14 times since then. <laughs> and he's like, wow, that's great, Jim. If you ever want to go to a meeting, give me a call. And the next day, I, I didn't drink that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me back up a little bit. The morning before, we were on our way out to do this paint job kind of a far out mm-hmm. in the country. It was an airport hangar. Mm-hmm. And we got the job done. And we, were f- we went fishing and water skiing and everything. Mm-hmm. And that was the last day I drank. But I'll never forget reaching for my first beer from the back seat of a 76 Cougar. Mm. And the clock's in the middle of the dashboard. And it said 8 a.m. And I knew that I was back where I'd started from. <laughs> and I pulled the tab. Remember yeah. pull tabs? Yeah, right. I remember pull tabs. Right. Uh-huh. I love pull tabs. Yeah, you just rip it off the can. Yeah. Yeah. He used, yeah. used to step on them when the river and everything, but uh, cut your foot. Uh-huh. So that day, I had this realization that nothing's changed. Hmm. And then we see each other, we do lunch, and... I tell him, yeah, hey, uh, he, he says, if you ever want to go to a meeting, give me a call. Uh-huh. And I started getting that same antsy feeling because I didn't drink that day. This right. was the day after. Uh-huh. And um, and I called him the next day and I said, I'm ready. And he said, I'll be there. Huh. And he took me to, I think it was three meetings in that first day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to a six o'clock, we went to an eight o'clock, and then we went to a midnight meeting at night and day club. And that's where he introduced me to my sponsor. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, 
a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. That negative attitude you had about AA, did that show up in any of those first few meetings, or were you ready by that point to listen to what they were saying? No, AA was the last stop on the block for me. It the, was. I, I had, yeah, all the animosity was gone. I was beaten into a state of reasonableness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, what's interesting is an ex-girlfriend showed up at that midnight meeting, and this friend of mine knew she was an ex, and he saw what was going on, and the wheels spinning through my head. Yeah. Okay, so I'm like 24 hours out, right? right. I'm mm-hmm. starting to sweat, and I'm shaking a little bit, and I'm really starting to get, you know, I love to reference them as the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. You know, your right. skin crawls a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. During that midnight meeting, it was a speaker's meeting. You know, we called them leads up in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was this old, fat, bald man up front laughing like Santa Claus, mm-hmm. and, and it was kind of irritating. Yeah. You know, and then his ex-girlfriend shows up, and I'm completely distracted. Right. And this guy that had taken me to these meetings, he, you know, he sees what's going on, and after the meeting, he says, are you serious about this? Yeah. You know, I, I was a little taken aback. Mm-hmm. You know, I probably had my feelings hurt. Yeah. <laughs> and um, he says, I, I say, of course I am. And he says, go up to that guy over there, and you tell him, What's going on with you? Mm-hmm. And he pointed to that old fat bald man who I was kind of irritated with. <laughs> and I think that, you know, in regards to your, your question yeah. about, you know, was, there's, was there still any animosity towards AA? Yeah. All my animosity went out the door when I went up and, and, you know, told him my name and said, you know, I think I need your help. Wow. So you found your sponsor relatively early on. I mean, my first day of meetings, your first day of meetings, which is absolutely amazing. Well, he was assigned to me. Well, no, I get that. But, you know, I I didn't get my first I didn't get my only sponsor till I was sober almost a year because I thought I could do it myself. But I always I always admire people who are able to get a sponsor right away. So you got him. Did he start lining you up with meetings immediately? And, and did you start working the steps immediately? Oh, that first night in meetings, he had me sit down and read the book with him. And wow. we got down on our knees and said the third step prayer that first night. The very first night. Mm-hmm. And you're 20, almost 21? I at was this point? 21 at that you point. You were 21. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you get sober, you're an AA at 21. Mm-hmm. And here we are now, 12,000. 11,679 days, days, give or take a day or two. No. (laughs) No, okay. That's precise. precise. There's an app for that. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I know. I think I have that app. (laughs) So he gets you working on the steps. How long did it take you to get through the 12 steps? We we get down on our knees Mm -hmm. in this, you know, at the night and day club in Cleveland, Euclid, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And um, we say this third step prayer and, you know, I'm doing two, three meetings a day after that. Wow. But I'm, you know, that, that withdrawal is still setting in. I can't sleep. Right. And about, I I guess it was probably, I don't know if it was right at two weeks, Mm -hmm. 10 days, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really feeling pretty bad Mm. but i'm so close to my last drink that i know that's not the answer Mm -hmm. but i don't know what is Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. was the problem was i didn't have a solution yeah and you know i'd been in meetings and they were talking about a power greater than myself and everything but i had no connection to him right i mean the book says it it says although our decision was a vital and crucial step it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of these things Mm in ourselves yes which have been blocking us yeah god wanted to be able to help me but he couldn't yeah and so um i'm at a speaker's meeting and it's that same friday you you know night Uh and day club friday night meeting at midnight a guy gets up at the podium and starts talking about suicide and that's where i was i i I was i knew i couldn't use anymore but i I didn't have a connection there was no solution you know it's like linus you had taken my blanket away but i didn't have anything else wow and i went up to him afterwards and i and i told him i said listen man i you know i want to blow my face off Uh and he smiled at me and he said do your four step and so I sat down that night with uh, one of my my sponsors, sponsees, and he uh-huh. took me through my fourth step, and we did my fifth step that night, and I waited the hour. I didn't go home. Uh-huh. Um, I waited the hour right there, and we did six and seven, and I made the list, and the next day I had it, and um, that same friend that took me to my first night of meetings mm-hmm. took me over to um, Sister Ignatia Hospital up in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that, but... Yeah. Um, 
you know, it was back in the 80s. So yeah. I put my spenders on and my uh-huh. thin black tie. <laughs> and, and I went up there and I told my story to a guy. Huh. You know, and I come out of that room fired up. I was on fire. That guy mm-hmm. is going to stay sober. Right. You know, and my friend says, yeah, that's great. How hmm. do you feel and what do you think? And, you know, I, I don't think I, I made the connection at that point in time. Right. But really, I was there to help me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. More than anything else. Hmm. So you were up to the eighth step within a week. 14 days. 14 days. So, so yeah. a couple of weeks. Had you already started to make amends by that point, or were you still in the process? Of... No, no. The, yeah, it was probably 10 to 14 days before I'd made the list. Wow. And then started. And this is, I love this. You know, you sober up a horse thief, and you, yeah. what you've got is a better horse thief. Right. So to make amends to my mother, I went out and I stole landscape material and, <laughs> you know, did her yard for her. And my sponsor said, well, where'd you get the money for that? You know, it's just... <laughs> we're so sick and it takes us so long to get oh, better that's but, rich that's you know, I, I was you know i was well intended well intended oh my gosh doing a ninth step by committing a crime that's amazing it just shows you that little thug hoodlum mentality that i had you know what's interesting about this part of your story jim is that a lot of people talk about the time frame of working the steps. And it seems to me that, especially up in that part of the country, because you and Cleveland aren't too far from the birthplace of this movement, but it used to be that people would be taken through the steps much, much more rapidly than they are these days. My experience was, I, you know, I did my, my third step in my first night of meetings, and I did my fourth step within the first two weeks. Sure. And I, I can tell you this, it, it, it felt like I OD'd on AA. Really? And people talk about, oh, well, they're, they're brainwashing you. Well, my brain needed to be washed. Yeah. 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 Um, I, all I thought about was using. Uh-huh. And so I had finally been able to make the connection between that physical craving and that mental obsession. Mm-hmm. And what I realized and what the book says is that, you know, when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. Mm-hmm. And so if I want to be able to get over that physical craving right. and I don't want to have to suffer and struggle with the mental obsession, mm-hmm. I've got to get right with God. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, well, the book's specific. It talks about that decision and it says at once and it says next. Right. So I don't, I feel badly for people who have waited because it's, it's suffering to me. Yeah. And I suffered for that year in between treatment and going to AA. Yeah. Yeah. That was long enough. I I, I don't know if I could have lasted. I mean, you know, you talk about, you know, waiting a year because you just you were trying to sponsor yourself and thank God for effective sponsorship. And so when I work with men who are new in recovery or or old in recovery, the first thing I do is get them going on their steps. Yeah. And you move them through it pretty quickly. Absolutely. Because you you don't there's no time to lose. And you once you got their attention, you got to capitalize on it. I can't keep me sober. I can't keep them sober. So you're in you're in AA. You worked all your steps within a relatively abbreviated period of time. So what do the next number of years look like? Uh, you're 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 still in Cleveland at this point. Yes, yes. Well, you know, one of the things is I'm still in college, right? I've right. gone to treatment. I've gotten out. I've used for another year. Uh, I, I'm now sober, and this is over the summer. You know, I got sober on June 21st right. of '89. Uh-huh. Um, I go back to college and proceed to try to do my best to get my grade point up. I love, yeah, the, my first semester, my grade point was a one nine seven and it wasn't the worst in my dorm room. And, um, so I climbed my way out academically, ended up with like a three, five, I think Hume, Wow. you know, started to build a profession and a career for myself as a child life specialist, um, uh-huh. which is addressing emotional and developmental needs of hospitalized children. Huh. And my mother kind of introduced me to that career. It was, it, it, you know, I think there was there was definitely some some of my own personal history yeah, in I regards to not having mommy and daddy around. Sure. My sister was hospitalized when she was young, and she remembers still to this day the trauma of yeah. not having my mother there with mm-hmm. her because back then they, they wouldn't allow that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I, I graduate. I think I had about 18 months at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And um, was, and you were going to meetings in Kent. I was going to meetings in Akron and Kent. I told my story at um, Akron City Hospital. Oh, yeah. Uh, went to Founders Day, went to Dr. Bob's house, mm-hmm. um, did retreats on Lake Erie. Wow. 
And yeah, so I was doing meetings kind of back and forth. I was tra- I did an internship at Rainbow Babies and Children's, and so I was going kind of in between Kent and, and Cleveland hmm. weekly. Mm-hmm. Um, was offered a position, you know, fairly quickly. I think December. I graduated like the the summer of was mm-hmm. when my internship was completed. So I was probably right around, uh, you know, a year, like I said, a year, maybe 15, 16 months, something like uh-huh. that. Was offered a position at San Antonio Children's Hospital. Uh-huh. Went and they served me chips and salsa and I never looked back. Uh-huh. Yeah, I moved to San Antonio, packed as much into an 87 Honda Civic that I could. And, yeah. Um, relocated to San Antonio, Texas. and Wow. Started going to meetings. Coming from Cleveland and Akron and the kind of AA that they have up there, was it a shock for you to come into AA in San Antonio or were there vast differences or did you find the similarities very quickly? Oh, no, they didn't do it right. (laughs) It's real interesting because, you know, in in Cleveland, and and I don't know, it may not be that way anymore, but a majority of the meetings were leads where, you, you know, someone stood up and told their story and then... People would thank you and and or tell you you're full of it if you, right. you were weren't telling the truth from the podium. But they weren't discussion meetings. It wasn't where open you're telling, discussion meetings right. and things like that. And mm. so I get to San Antonio and I'm a. I mean, I maybe went to one speaker meeting every other week or something mm-hmm. like that. And everything else was discussion. And I think people got tired of cutting me off because I would talk for ten or fifteen minutes because I wasn't used to talking for two oh, or three yeah. instead. Yeah. And, uh-huh. Um. So yeah, yeah, there was definitely some adjustment. I see. Um, when I went to San Antonio, I went to a club that will remain nameless. Uh-huh. And um, they were talking about a dance and they uh-huh. were talking about bingo. And <laughs> I, you know, I just kind of didn't get the sense that it was the right place for me. So then uh-huh. I went out to a, a club on the northeast side of town called Serendipity. And I, I walk through the door. I go to pour myself a cup of coffee. And the first thing I hear is some guy telling some other guy, you need to work your fifth step. <laughs> and that yeah. man it's interesting he just called me yesterday we've been friends ever since wow and he was the best man at my wedding mm-hmm. and um you know i'd kind of found a home group at that point in time cool. found a sponsor there uh-huh. and uh-huh. um you know i was in san antonio for about two years and uh-huh. then i had to get a little culture before i came to houston right i get that okay so you came to houston when you were about four years sober might have been five yes yeah, five years sober i guess wow Wow. Almost five. Now, were you actively sponsoring men in San Antonio? Absolutely. Yeah. What did you do with those guys when you came to Houston? I probably told them, because back then, I mean, this was 94. I mean, I think I still carried a pager back then. Yeah, right. I remember (laughs) those days. I mean, cell phones came out like 96 or something like Uh that. Um, I I probably told them that they either needed to ask my sponsor to sponsor them or to find somebody before I left. Hmm. Mm. Uh, because you know it's different nowadays. I mean, yeah. if I had you know if I had a FaceTime yeah. and Zoom and all these yeah, wonderful yeah. things that have been so effective in enduring the pandemic. Yeah. So you get here to Houston, and what did you find that you liked and didn't like about Houston AA? You know what I loved was it, it, there was a strong young people's presence in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, they had Hickey Paw and all those things. Yeah. And I remember going to Whitney when I was young. That was nice. It was nice to have people who had a significant amount of recovery close to my time, maybe more. Mm, I mean, there's mm -hmm. several guys that got sober when they were 18, 19 years old back then who, Uh you know, still have three or four years up on me. And that's great. That's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I guess for me, it was it was nice to have that. You know, it was much more of a, it was a professional decision than more than anything else. I was offered a director's position uh-huh. at Shriners Hospitals for Children. And so mm-hmm. I took that and it was very much a career move. But San Antonio is a little bit of a sleepy retired town. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's that so much anymore, but um, yeah, mm-hmm. Houston's a big city. And yeah, I was that's where I was, you know, I was used to Cleveland and the big city. Yeah. So you came to Houston, you got yourself immediately engaged with AA. I moved into an apartment that was probably two blocks from the VA hospital. And I think I moved on a Sunday and there was a Tuesday meeting scheduled there at the Mm -hmm. VA. And I go over and the patients are running the meeting. And I said, no, that's not the way (laughs) this is supposed to work. And so I kind of absconded that meeting for myself and, Uh um, started doing that meeting on a consistent basis. I think it probably lasted, I don't know if it lasted a decade, but it was probably between seven and nine years, something like that. And wow. any of the men that I sponsored were obliged to come with me. And you know, we saw guys fall out and have seizures there in the middle of the 
mm-hmm. meeting. And um, there's something powerful about being on the front lines. Yeah, yeah. And and you've always been one of those kind of guys, too, haven't you? Oh, absolutely. With, with going down to the rougher sides of town. Uh, what is the what is there about that that appeals to you more than some of these higher end meetings that you and I know about? I, I mean, knowing my history, I, yeah. I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth. Mm-hmm. I think alcoholism is not it's not prejudice. I don't right. think there's any there's no line of delineation between, you know, which side of the tracks you grew up mm-hmm. on or any right. of those things. Right. I, I guess for me, if I if I can make it right, then so can they. Yeah. You know, I sponsor guys who come from very wealthy families. I sponsor men who come from very little. Mm. And so I, I don't know that it's, you know, one side of town or the other. Yeah. I think it's both sides of town. And that I think is, you know, one of the things that attracts me. I, I, I live on the west side. I go to a lot of east side meetings and yeah. sponsor a lot of men from the east side. But there's several men from the west side that I sponsor and I go to several meetings over here. How do you feel about those guys, though, who, and I remember this a lot early on and over the years, guys would say, well, you got to go down to the 24-hour club because that's real, that's real alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Or you got to go down to, uh, you know, to, to, to the, the ship channel area and, mm-hmm. and other areas of town, the rougher parts of town, and there you'll see real AA. How do you feel when you hear that? Yeah, it, it goes back to the point you made about being from Cleveland. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I was spoon-fed this program, and, and I don't think it matters what side of town I'm on. Mm-hmm. It's my responsibility to spoon-feed the men that I sponsor the step. And, yeah. and, and, you know, hopefully help them build a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. But I do think this, I think there's probably the sense of desperation yeah. can be stronger right. if right. you have less. Right. I mean, I've seen people kill themselves with their parents' checkbook or their own checkbook. Yeah. And because there's less, you know, the, the consequences don't seem as dramatic. Uh-huh. And, and something that's been really, it's, it's been on my heart a lot lately uh-huh. is this is a fatal illness. Yeah. It's not a chronic disease. Mm-hmm. It kills. It and does. the book says that. Yeah. I mean, we buried an 18-year-old two weeks ago. Mm, that's rough. You know, he was from the nicer part of town. Yeah, I get that. I think there's, there's a sense of desperation that can be seen when you don't have the resources maybe that some do, yeah. but I, I don't think my alcoholism is any different because I did or didn't have money. Yeah. Well, you know what I've realized and what I've found, I've been doing these big book podcasts and of course reading the first and second editions, personal stories in the first edition and per, a lot of the personal stories in the second edition are stories of people who, who have gone all the way to the bottom, people sure. who are living out on the streets, people who are uh, riding Riding the Rods, as, as one of the stories is entitled. You don't see the number of stories of people with whom I can relate to their situation in life. I can relate to them as an alcoholic, but I never lived out on the streets. Mm-hmm. I never had a hop or freight train to get from here to there. Uh, you know, I never drank shoe polish or Sneaky Pete or whatever it was. But it occurs to me that the way AA grew, even up to the second printing of the big book in 1955, a lot of the stories were stories of really harsh circumstances and real desperation within those circumstances. Does, does that does that? Yeah, make sense? No, I, it's a really good observation, and I would have to assume is because of the maturation process of right. Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. what we've done is we've been able to reach out and touch right people that may not have been as bad off as it used to be right right and so right. the the ability to intervene at a younger stage and thank god because if i if i hadn't come to alcoholics anonymous at 21 god knows you know i've got a a guy i sponsored just celebrated 29 years uh-huh. and you know he got sober at 21 as well wow you know we were having a conversation about what would our lives look like without recovery right now yeah. would we even be alive yeah and i don't know that I would have made it past 21, 22, 23, 24. I mean, like I said, this kid, you know, that I, parents and I go to church together and yeah. I watched him grow up and at 18, we're having his funeral. Mm. He had access to and was exposed to recovery. Mm. And that I think is a benefit today. Yeah. I think if you had asked people in the in the 50s or the 60s, had they ever heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't know that all, you know you would get the same percentage that you do today. Yeah, and what's interesting about that, Jim, is that even today, the perception 
that young people have about Alcoholics Anonymous is people living under the bridge. And my guess is a lot of the people who are saying that have never actually seen an alcoholic who's living under a bridge. Mm -hmm. What they're going by is what they may have understood older people what they thought was an, an alcoholic. Oh, and, no. Well, that was my definition. Yeah. yeah uh, it's mine the too. brown paper bag yeah. under the bridge. Yeah. And then I go to treatment and they talk about that physical craving. Right. And it changed, you know, it changed a little bit of my attitude yeah. Yeah. because I, I identified, yeah, when I drink one, I drink another, I drink another right. and I don't stop and I keep going and yeah. until it's all gone or my money's all gone. You know, maybe that's kind of the, the observation is, is because Alcoholics Anonymous has been, you know, established for not quite a hundred years yet, but yeah. you know, we have the ability to, to reach people who haven't gone quite as far down the scale. Right. And, and the thing is, we are only a couple of generations removed from the founding of the program. So we are not all that far down the road. I mean, a hundred years from now, it would be interesting to see, you know, as you get more and more generations. One of the reasons that I am so strongly committed to sharing what's in the book. Right versus what's my opinion. Right. Yeah, you've always been a book guy. I mean... Everybody's played the telephone game. Yeah, yeah. When you write it down, the message doesn't change, but when you whisper it in the guy's ear next to you and it goes around the circle, you right. never know what's going to come back in your other ear. Yeah, I get that. I get that. One of the reasons why I started the AA Recovery Interviews podcast was because for a guy like you, there's like 29, 30 years between the point at which you got sober and started working your program and today. Mm -hmm. What I like to point out to people and what I wanted the podcast to do was to talk about some of the things that happened between the getting sober and the today, which were difficult times, uh, sublime times, times of great enjoyment, times of utter despair, and how you got through them. Can you think of some of those off the top of your head? Oh, absolutely. You know, life's life. And, yeah. and, and that's what I, I think some people, you know, they come into Alcoholics Anonymous and think it's all going to be rainbows and unicorns. And, right. And life goes on. It does. You know, I, I struggled with relationships in my first decade of recovery. I mm -hmm. didn't know how to have a healthy relationship. My, I finally, I let my brother-in-law pick my wife for me because <laughs> I had a bad picker. Or I just wasn't the right guy is probably more the truth. So your brother, your brother-in-law or your brother, who was no, it? Who well, it's my wife's sister's husband. He and I worked together. And so he was, um, t he had accepted a different, uh, new position at another organization and uh -huh. at his going away party, she and I had met and we had talked a little bit about oh, okay. being introduced and anyway, so everybody in my family had been divorced at least once, most sure. of them twice. Uh -huh. I really had very little understanding or clarity uh-huh you know i took hostages i, yeah, I didn't right. <laughs> I, I didn't have relationships yeah and if you didn't worship me then i didn't you know i had to worship you and anyway so but I, i'm proud to say it. you know i've been happily married for the last 23 years and we have two beautiful children um we did we lost a child in between the two mm. you know Life is a miraculous thing. Yeah. Um, I'll never forget. I was on a mountaintop in Colorado with a bunch of little adolescent drug addict alcoholics because, mm -hmm. you know, it was one of those adolescent programs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, through, uh, you know, a, an alternative peer group. And uh -huh. we, we had just come off the mountain from this camping trip. Right. Over the summer. And, um, and my wife calls and, you know, well, I call her when we get down to base camp and she says, yeah, I'm pregnant. And that was, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I just stood there and cried like a baby with, you know, with all these teenagers. Um, you know, we said the, the Lord's Prayer and it's, it's just powerful stuff. And that was your older son she yes, was pregnant that was my, with? Yes, uh -huh, that was our firstborn. So this is what, 20? 21 years ago. 21 years ago. Sure. Wow. Wow. And um, so there's a gift. You also mentioned the, the tragic loss of the... Yeah, our second son was um, at, at 21 weeks. He was diagnosed with, uh, well, 21 weeks. What I say that is, is um, in utero. utero. Yeah. Anacephalic. He was anacephalic. Yeah, okay. And um, so the skull doesn't develop. And they said, you know, they told my wife that she could carry him full term, but he wouldn't make it right um so she decided to to deliver him at 24 weeks and, and wow. he was stillborn and it was devastating i mean that must it, have been really tough it gave me a stronger appreciation for life than i'd ever had before yeah. uh -huh. and, and what's so ironic is is that i never respected my own life huh 
and had always you know treated this gift that I've been given yeah with such maliciousness yeah yeah um, we um, you know we endure that grief right and I don't think that's something you ever get over I think grief is something that you learn to live with and that's one of the things that I learned and studied is um, that yeah, it's it's time doesn't heal my grief. I think I, the grief stays with me. I think it mm. it, it it wanes a yeah. little bit, but it's not something I get over. Tell me about during that time that very very tragic experience that you went through. Tell me about your program at that time and how the program might have contributed to you being pulled through intact. Well, I, you know, for me, it's real simple. I, yeah. I, you know, I said earlier, when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. And I, I struggled with God at that point in time. Mm. You know, how dare you mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. kind of my perspective. And why was another strong, yeah. strong perspective of why. And, you know, what I came to terms with is some questions aren't meant for me to have answers to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there was never a point in time where I thought about drinking. And that's the miracle of this program is, is if I continue to do the things I need to. Uh-huh. Ten steps says it. We continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And I was resentful at God, and I was being dishonest with myself. And um, I had a sponsor. Right. I was sponsoring other men. I was going to meetings. I pray every day religiously, mm-hmm. and that's not to say that I mm-hmm. have to have a Bible to pray, but I pray religiously. In other right. words, I, I, I'm committed to it. You know, having all those tools. And continuing to use all those tools kept me going in regards to enduring that traumatic experience. Yeah, I get that. I get that. A year later, we, uh, my wife gave birth to my daughter, who at six weeks was diagnosed with meningitis. Oh. And she, um, you know, we got her to the hospital, thank God, fairly quickly. And she doesn't struggle now from any ramifications of that. But, you know, my mother, who had been ostracized from the church during right. her divorce, mm-hmm had carried a resentment against religion, God, and the church for 36 years, Uh all of my life. Uh And, um, you know, we called and I told her that Kayla had been hospitalized. And, you know, for the first time in my life, my mother said she was going to pray. Oh, wow. And it's those kinds of things that even during difficult times, even Uh when life stinks, being able to see God's presence in that. Yeah. It's really powerful. The important thing is that I've seen your story, and I don't want to lose sight of the fact that you and I have known each other a long time, but we didn't get as close as we've gotten, which is very close, until we shared the common experience of what happened to our good friend and watching him go through what he went through in his last days on this earth as a result of the the liver cancer and that experience, watching all the men gather around and go to his house at that hospital bed, and you were there, and I was there, and a number of other men were there. Um, there was something so spiritual about that. Did you did you get that sense oh, as well? Oh, absolutely. And I'm so grateful. Well, first and foremost, you know, I love John with yeah. with all my heart. And yeah. I miss him tremendously still today. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, thank God for those mm-hmm. hours and days that we spent in that townhome with him and, and helping him, you know, transition and, and um, die peacefully uh, because it gave us an opportunity to connect. And, and, and you know, there's there were three or four. Tom, I think, was one. and. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's always good that can come out of whatever it is that we experience, but we've got to be able to, our eyes have to be open to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's what they were. I, well, you know, what amazed me was right up to his dying day, and we were there literally the day he passed and the day after, was he was always asking about how you doing. He knew that we were concerned about him, but he's right up to the end, it was, mm-hmm. how, so how are you doing? And... And there was uh, nothing you could say to him no, that no. he wouldn't figure out a way to connect with. I know. And that was, it was, I learned so much from him. And, uh, and getting to know you better was the gift that came out of that. So mm-hmm. I am convinced that you and I being as close as we are is no coincidence mm-hmm. that God brought us together for a purpose. Sure. And... I knew when I started this podcast that I wanted you as one of the people on there because I admire the program that you work. 
There are days that I sit in meetings wishing, God, I wish I had that photographic memory of the big book that Jim has, because people, they could read the passage to me and I forget it in the next 15 seconds. That might be... Well, this coming from the man who knows every name of every man well, in the meeting. Yeah, so. I, I, work, I work pretty hard at that. But. <laughs> Which I think is important. And, okay. and it's one of the things I love about you and getting to know you. And, and I remember being in Cleveland yeah. and being required to greet at the door. Yeah. And people look at you kind of like they look at me when I tell them how many days I have yeah. while you're greeting at the door. Yeah. And they don't yeah. get it. They don't get it. But and, you do it enough and people get used to it. In fact, when you introduce yourself in the very few times I've heard you introduce yourself over the years, and you don't say the number of days, I'm like, wait a second, he missed something, he missed something. So I, I wish we had another hour or two to just kind of share, but we, we've had the opportunity to share some of the real highlights of your, your sobriety and the fact that you got sober at 21 and you had, you've had 30 years of life in the AA lane. What's that meant to you? Well, okay, so I had to, I used to bristle with antagonism mm-hmm. at religion, and, and I can I can feel the nearness of my creator in a mm-hmm. church today. Mm-hmm. I, I, I no longer am a prisoner of self, and, mm-hmm. and I have a freedom, mm-hmm. so to speak, in regards to not being captive to this illness. Yeah, yeah. Um, and not being a victim of it. Yeah. It, it's the one disease that actually the treatment can be beneficial for. Yeah. And and there's not a lot of that out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got several men who close with thank God, thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous yeah. and thank Alcoholics <laughs> Anonymous for God. And so yeah. I think it's probably the best way to end it. And I love yeah. you. And yeah. when you do your interview, I want to be the interviewer. Well, thank okay? you. And I love you, Jim. You're, you're a big part of my life. And I appreciate you doing this. And yeah, we'll get around to my interview one of these days. But for now, I want to thank you so much for doing this. And uh, I know it's going to change some people's minds. It may change some people's lives just to hear about your experience and the fact that you were able to do it starting at 21. I had to wait until I was almost 31, but looking back, it took every single one of those days to get me to that point, and it's taken every single one of the days since that point, in your case, 11,467. Am I right? Or 670. All right. Forget it. Forget (laughs) it. All right. Well, that's a wrap, my brother. Thanks so much, Jim. This worked out great. Thanks, Howard. Okay. You bet. Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Jim W. for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other social media? You see, I'm pretty good at staying sober, but not so good at social media. And I know there are many alcoholics out there who could benefit from this podcast, if they only knew about it. So anything you can do to help will be greatly appreciated. That includes telling sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Everyone can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. Visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.